0: This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. It was the summer of 1996. Almost every American was glued to their television. In fact, millions of people tuned in to watch as Carrie Strug from Tucson, Arizona, stared down the long runway leading to the vault. This was the final discipline in the women's team event in the Olympics, the Olympic Games, held in Atlanta. And Kerry was the final competitor in the rotation. The second day of team competition seemed to have started with a sure gold win for the United States. The US was the hometown team. The crowd was raucous and passionate. And when the day started, the seven-member team, dubbed the Magnificent Seven, was on the verge of winning the United States' first team gold medal in a fully contested Olympics. That is, there were no countries boycotting this 26th Olympiad. And on this final evening of team competition, the U.S. women's gymnastic team was in full control, or so they thought. On paper, they had built what seemed like an insurmountable lead, and that was until the team entered that final event, the vault. The first four gymnasts landed their vaults, but struggled to land them cleanly, taking steps and hops. Adding to the drama, Strug's teammate, 14-year-old Dominique Mociano, the strongest discipline, whose strongest discipline was the vault, she fell twice, registering a poor score. With her failed attempts, the gold medal seemed to be slipping away. Now Strug was the last to vault for the United States, and the U.S. was leading the Russians by a slim .897 points in a sport where the Russians traditionally dominated and the U.S. had never won. Still, the U.S. had one more gymnast, four-foot, seven-inch tall, 89 pounds, 18-year-old Carrie Strug. Carrie was the last competitor in the rotation of the U.S.'s final event, and she had two vaults to execute. On her first vault, Carrie under-rotated and could not stand on her feet, landing on her backside. And what is worse, something happened when her feet hit the mat. Struggs said she doesn't remember the first vault, only the sound of her left ankle giving way on her landing. There was such momentum, she told Sports Illustrated in 1997. The bone was shoved forward and then back in place, and I heard something snap. She didn't know it at the time, but she had severely sprained her ankle, and yet she still had one more vault. This was not just an ordinary sprain. She had torn two ligaments in her ankle. And now she had 30 seconds to decide if she was going to do this next vault. She asked her coach, do we need this? He said, Carrie, we need you to go one more time. We need you to go one more time for the gold. You can do it. You better do it. So the trainers did what they could to tape her ankle and prepare her for the next vault. Carrie hobbled to the starting point. As she waited for the green light, Carrie visualized the vault, swung her arms in front of her, lined up exactly 77.3 feet away from her takeoff point. She reached down, twisted her left foot with her hand, trying to work out the pain. But all she felt was a crackling. Then the green light came on, and she took off. In excruciating pain, Carrie sprinted the 77.3 feet down the runway. Carrie couldn't feel her leg. She was afraid she would fall on the runway in front of everyone. She said she felt like her ankle was swinging loosely from the rest of her leg like it was hanging by a string. She thought she was running too slow. But when she got to the 45.82 mark, she hit the springboard perfectly. But on her launch, she heard another rip from her ankle. Still, she managed to launch herself into the air, twist, flip, and most importantly, She stuck the landing. She held the landing long enough to make it official and then collapsed to the ground in overwhelming pain. Her score for the vault, 9.712. With that vault, Carrie propelled the U.S. women's gymnastic team into gold. Carrie's vault was perhaps the most iconic Olympic, literally walk-off or limp-off in history. I remember sitting at home watching those Olympics. Carrie was an instant hero. But what was it that compelled Carrie to make this final vault, even at the risk of her own personal health? It doesn't take much contemplation. Certainly, it was because she had an eye on the ultimate prize a gold medal. She had literally trained her entire life for this. This was her shot to reach the pinnacle of any gymnast career, a spot at the podium, hearing one's own national anthem, and and an enduring legacy of Olympic glory. Nothing was going to stop her once she eyed the prize. A few weeks ago, I preached from 1 Peter chapter 1, and this evening we're going to return to that chapter. Last time, I highlighted three phrases that Peter used to encourage his Jewish audience as to why they needed to live holy lives. You might recall that I said that I think we could be encouraged in the 21st century with those same three phrases. The first phrase was, We have been been begotten to a lively hope. The second was, We are kept by the power of God. And the third phrase was that we might be found unto praise and honor and glory. Three truths that Peter used to remind these strangers scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia of their blessed hope, and they're just as applicable and are truths we as 21st century Christians scattered throughout the United States, Europe, Asia, Africa, South America, literally anywhere a Christian is found in the world. These are truths available to the church today. Well, we're going to go back to chapter 1 this evening. I'd like to de- develop this hope a little more, but we're not, we're, we are going to shift our focus from the believer and instead focus on the person of our hope. Last time we looked at how we have been begotten, how we have been kept by the power of God, how we have been found unto praise and honor and glory. But this evening, we're going to follow Peter's lead and see what, or perhaps better, whose appearance is our living hope. Lord willing, tonight, we'll see the appearance of Jesus as our ultimate prize. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-8. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, and may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this past Sunday evening, I shared a brief synopsis of some training I provided chaplains at the Foundations Baptist Fellowship International with Pastor Asher, Pastor Radice, and Brian Boyd and I that we attended there in Des Moines, Iowa last week. Well, this evening... I'm not going to provide the entirety of that training to you, but I would like to return to something I mentioned Sunday and build upon this, it this evening. Lord willing, even next Sunday, Wednesday, we'll conclude. Last week, I laid out to our chaplains how paradoxical the ministry of a chaplain is. I'm sure you often think of paradoxes, right? Lately, I've found them to be fascinating. What is a paradox? Well, I said this Sunday. I'll provide you with a brief definition again. A paradox is a situation or statement that seems impossible or difficult to understand because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics. In 1934, an artist created what has become known as the impossible triangle. His name was Oskar Rutsvart. Oscar was just an art student in Sweden, when he created a triangle that first seems like the simple geometric shape which all school children are familiar with. However, as the eye tries to follow the outlines, the triangle abruptly becomes a dizzying experience as its bottom link plays havoc with the brain's intuitive knowledge of physical laws. In 1937, Oscar took his triangle and created what he called the Impossible Stairs, a concept that then led to the impossible fork. I'm sure you've seen these illusions. While Oscar was creating these optical illusions, a father-son team in Great Britain, Lionel and Roger Penrose, they were also studying, independent of Oscar, but they were studying the world of impossible objects. It was the Penroses who wrote a classic article on impossible objects in 1958, and it was from the Penrose article that the triangle like Oscar had drawn ultimately became known as the Penrose Triangle. Oscar passed away in 2002. The graphic artist and pioneer of 3D drawings is now known as the father of the impossible figure. Now, while Oscar was drawing and the Penroses were writing about impossible objects, there was a third gentleman who contributed to this. His name was M.C. Escher. Escher was a Dutch graphic artist who created the now-famous print Ascending and Descending. The Impossible Stairs the impossible triangle, and Escher's drawings all are examples of visual paradox. Have you ever considered a paradox? Many famous ones have been presented to us throughout history, like the Sorites paradox. This paradox, also known as the paradox of the heap, goes something like this. Imagine you have a heap of sand. Now, if you take away a single grain of sand from the heap, you would look at the sand, what is remaining, and say, I still have a heap. Now take away another grain. You would say, I still have a heap. If we continue this enough times, eventually you will get down to one grain of sand, which we would all agree is not a heap. So the question is, when did the sand cease being a heap? Hmm. Or how about Theses' paradox? This paradox has been around since the first century. Suppose you have a wooden ship. As happens with all wooden ships, after a certain amount of time, the wood decays. And so you replace a piece of the ship with a new piece of wood. You still have the same ship, right? After all, when you get new tires, you're not getting a new car. Well, if over an amount of time you eventually replace the entire ship, all the old ship's wooden pieces have been completely replaced by new pieces of wood. And let's elevate this a bit. Imagine we have taken all the old pieces of wood and we use them to form a ship with all the old pieces. When we get to the point that we have completely replaced the old ship with new wood, have we built a new ship with old wood? And which ship is the original? Hmm. Here's one last paradox to keep your brain exercised. It's often called the Epimenides Paradox. I actually shared this with you on Sunday. While there are many variations of this paradox, it is best known as the liar paradox. Here's the simple version. If I made the statement, this statement is false, Well, if this statement is false, then it would be true, which would again refer it to be false, and hence the very paradoxical nature of the statement. But what makes a paradox a paradox? Because they are purposely created to be difficult to understand. I dare even say impossible to understand. Last week when I did this training, our scheduled time was right after lunch. Probably not the best time to be considering These types of life changing arguments. But hey, I figured at eight o'clock on a weeknight after a long day of work, you're primed to ponder these things. Paradoxes, by definition, are mind boggling, they are really unexplainable. To even think I can explain a paradox is a paradox because, by definition, a paradox is something contradictory. So, in order to intellectually understand a paradox you would have to deconstruct its premises and remove the paradox but if you remove the paradox you no longer have a paradox so here's the paradox of the paradox you intellectually cannot understand a paradox if you did if you understood it it would cease to be a paradox and that my friend is a paradox Still, we can deconstruct the premises to make it understandable. But what does this have to do with us as Christians? Let's again look at this definition of that word paradox. A paradox is a situation or statement that seems impossible or is difficult to understand because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics. Let's go back to Escher's drawings. We know that you cannot go upstairs and downstairs at the same time but do you know why these impossible objects are impossible because they can't be replicated in 3d they can't be built in real life they're just drawings on a page You can only get the effect of the impossible object on a piece of paper in 2D. Why? Because in 3D, if you shift your position or change your perspective, the gig is up. These optical illusions only appear feasible from a single point of view. Now, Peter's going to give us two paradoxes in his passage. I guess you can say he gives us a, are you ready for it? A pair of paradoxes. Perhaps you've already noticed them. If not, I'll point them out and we'll look briefly at them. But before I do, I'd like to look at one last paradox to illustrate my point of shifting one's perspective. This one's in the Bible. If a paradox is a situation or statement that seems impossible or is difficult to understand because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics, then I think we are given a wonderful paradox in the Scriptures, and that's in the story of Esther. You recall the story, Esther... A Jew has become queen of a Gentile Persian empire. Things are not going well for the Jews in this empire. One of the officials of the court of King Ahasuerus is a man named Haman, and he hates the Jews. He hates them so much he concocts a plan to massacre all of them. Haman is able to convince the king to issue a decree that all Jews in the Persian empire be killed. But Haman's plot was foiled by Queen Esther, who had concealed her identity from the king. Esther, at the urging of her cousin Mordecai, reveals Haman's plan to Hashiris and pleads with the king to spare her people. Now the king's outraged with Haman and his treachery and orders that Haman be executed instead. This story is full of paradox or seemingly impossible facts. First, Esther, a Jew, marries a Gentile and is able to conceal her identity as a Jew from him. Yet the king is quite content in allowing one of his officials to concoct his plan to massacre an entire group of people of which his wife is a part. The queen is a Jew, but the queen is not killed, but rather because she is a Jew, her life is saved. What was supposed to kill the queen saved her life. That is why... Her cousin Mordecai says to her, Think not that thysel, of thyself that thou shalt escape into the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou shalt altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise from, uh, to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And here's what he says, And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now you might be thinking, there's really no paradox here. Though the divine name is not mentioned in the entire book of Esther, there's no paradox because his providence is vividly displayed throughout the entire story. And you're correct. Why? Because you shifted your perspective. You moved to a place where you can see God working, even in this story. Let's go back to Peter's epistle. The first paradox is this. You can greatly rejoice in sorrow. To put it in today's vernacular, you can be joyful even when things are going bad. This, my friend, is a paradox. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what the world tells us. On June 8th of this year, the University of Oklahoma women's softball team made history by winning their third national title. But it was the response of the team captain and some of her teammates that had my attention. In an interview, an ESPN reporter asked Grace Lyons, the team captain, this question. You talk about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It is such a long season. How do you keep joy for so long? The reporter wasn't ready for the answer. Here's Grace's answer. The only way that you can have joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. Any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Her teammate, pitcher Jordy Ball, echoed Grace's comment by saying, I'm just proud of how we've stuck together through pressure, adversity, and just have ultimately been one strong, cohesive unit that has, at the end of the day, taken that pressure and given the glory to the Lord and been been able to still play free and play together and find joy in things outside of the playing field. A third pitcher, or player, Jada Coleman, responded to the ESPN ESPN reporter with this, I agree 1,000%. And she then expressed how she won the national championship title during her freshman year, and it didn't mean much. She explained that without a relationship with Christ, she didn't feel fulfilled. She said, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do the following week. I didn't feel fulfilled, and I had to find Christ. I think that is what makes our team so strong, is that we're not afraid to lose because it's not the end of the world if we do lose. It's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ, and that's all that matters. All three of these players had their eye on the ultimate prize. Now there are two considerations of the antecedent of this pronoun wherein that begins verse 6. Wherein or in what is Peter telling his readers they can rejoice? We might consider that the antecedent is the last time of the words last time of verse 5. Perhaps Peter is telling us that we can greatly rejoice when our salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. But this seems to me to just be a future hope. In verse 5, Peter plainly says that we are kept now by the power of God through faith unto salvation. But that salvation has not yet been revealed. It will be revealed to us in the last time or at the last or in the end. So I think that is the future for us. It was certainly the future for Peter. And there is some precedent for looking up and rejoicing in the revelation of our Savior. In Luke 21, 28, Jesus told his disciples... When these things begin to come to pass, Jesus had just given them some signs of the end times. He said, then look up and lift your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. But if wherein is referring to some future event, in other words, there is some future event that is going to happen, namely the revealing of our salvation, and when that happens, you can rejoice, then I think it would give us a pass on rejoicing in our salvation now. We couldn't rejoice in our salvation now because it's not yet been completely revealed. Is this the encouragement Peter is giving us? Is he encouraging us with some sort of future joy that one day we'll be happy, we can be joyful? Well, what if we consider the antecedent for wherein to be a little more broad? Instead of it referring to the final phrase of verse 6, we consider it in context of all the preceding verses. Maybe Peter is telling his readers that they can rejoice. After all, he does the present tense, you can rejoice now. Maybe he's telling them that they can rejoice now in not just the revelation of our salvation, but you can actually rejoice in the hope of that coming salvation. It is this living hope. See verse 3, that comes through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and gives us the hope of an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away and is reserved in heaven for us who are kept in the power of God unto this salvation that will will be revealed in the end. We can rejoice in this hope now. I think Peter, though I think Paul, though his epistle to the Philippians may not have been written yet at this time that Peter was writing his, I think Peter would echo Paul's sentiment when he said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. The Christian's opportunity to rejoice is not relegated to some future event when we hope to see our salvation one day, and we'll rejoice when we see it, but we can rejoice now in our current state because we have hope now of that future event i think we as christians especially those of us who espouse a dispensational theology that looks forward to christ's return and the final revelation of our salvation i think we tend to be overly pessimistic we're the EoRs of christendom we expect misfortune we even welcome it while we dine on prickly thistles we enjoy singing songs like it'll be worth it all And roll our eyes, though, when we say there's joy in serving Jesus. We tend to revel in the social and political mayhem around us because we think it means our Lord's return is getting closer while we can complain about how bad the world is getting now. We say we want revival, but not if it means the Lord will delay his coming. Even if this delay would mean more sinners would come to Christ, we would rather see our world thrust into the great tribulation now just so we can be done. simply we are ready to get on with the end times and in doing so we forfeit our present joy and rather just focus on a future rejoicing at his appearance but we can be joyful now and I think Peter is telling us we can rejoice both now and in the time to come look what he says as we turn back to verse 6 wherein you greatly rejoice though now for a season if need be Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, or many trials. Peter says, you can rejoice even in the middle of grief. This is the first paradox that Peter presents to us. And to me, this solidifies the Christian's ability, even the desire of the Christian to rejoice in the present. Sure, you will have joy in the end when your faith is sight, but the fact that you can have hope right now of the salvation is reason to rejoice. Peter says you can rejoice even now when you might have seasons of great trials. We must be careful that we're not so forward-thinking of the joy that is to come that we become depressed in the present. There is joy now in the hope that we have right now. And there are two things that jump out at me in this verse. The first is the word season, and the second is the word manifold. I think one is quite positive and the other perhaps a little more unnerving. Let's look at the unnerving word first, manifold. Simply, a lot. We see that the grief Peter is referring to is not singular. There's a plurality of grief. I do not know one person who has only had one trial in their entire life. Even when we seem to have one major challenge in our lives, and we pray that God would deliver us of one major issue, I think we can all admit that that challenge manifests itself in so many different ways. I don't know the many trials Peter is referring to. In his epistle alone, he mentions the Gentiles speak of Christians as evildoers in 1 Peter 2.12. He also says the Gentiles speak out foolishly of the Christians in 2.15. He says he make, they make these Gentiles make Christians suffer, and they terrorize them in chapter 3 verses 14 through 17 and their persecution is constant in verse chapter 4 verses 12 through 19 we don't get a laundry list of the trials peter just says there are many of them and that word translated here as manifold is the same word james uses when he calls them diverse or different temptations the word used has a literal translation of various colors The idea is that there is a wide variety. Oh, they all are connected in that they're trials. There's a lot of colors. They're all colors, but there's a lot of them. Peter acknowledges that the trials of the Christian are many, varied, and different. Let's look at the more positive word. Though the trials are many, varied, and different, Peter says they are for just a season. Oh, I like that word, season. What does the word season mean to you? There are times of the year that I find just completely enjoyable. I think the leaves changing in the autumn are almost unsurpassed in their enjoyment and beauty. I went to college in Pensacola. They only have two seasons down there. Hot and humid, cold and rainy. The palm leaves just don't change colors like they do up north. This would be up north. But I I do love the changing colors of our trees around here. And the further north you go, the more majestic it gets. My parents have 60 acres in Ohio and a house that sits atop a hill. In the fall, you can look out and see a palette of color. But it seems that no sooner do the leaves change color that they fall off the trees altogether and that season of beauty is gone. Instead, we're thrust into a new season of winter where it's cold and rainy. Again, in Ohio, it would seem to start snowing in December, and that snow would stay on the ground until July. It seemed winter season was long and dark. When our family was stationed in Washington State during the winter months, I would get up and go to work when it was dark. I'd work on a ship all day, leave the ship, and go home, and it was dark. There were days I never saw daylight. That season seemed endless. But whether they are short bursts of seasonal color in the fall or long seasons of darkness in winter, the fact is seasons come and go. This is how Peter is using the word season here. It is something that comes for a time and then departs. Our many trials are not permanent. They are seasonal. They may seem to endure for a time, but they will eventually go away. At least, at last, we think these many trials are unless we think these many trials are arbitrary suffering, Peter tells us their purpose and even elaborates on the trial. They aren't just many and they aren't just seasonal. They are quite painful, he says. At least that's how I read verse 7. He uses the analogy of gold being tried by fire. I'm sure we can all agree that trial by fire is far from pleasant. As I mentioned this in my last message from this passage, the trying of gold by fire has one purpose, to remove the imperfections, the dross from the gold. Likewise, the trying of our faith, the fiery trials of our faith, are to test the character of our belief in an unseen Christ. So the first paradox that we, can re- we can ha- that we see here is that we can rejoice even in sorrow. But if we shift our perspective and keep our eye on the ultimate prize, it's no longer a paradox. It actually makes sense when we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. But let's quickly look at the second paradox and we'll be done. Peter gives us... Another paradox. Not only can we have joy and sorrow, but we can know and love someone that we've never seen. In our culture, where knowing someone is to love someone and seeing is believing, it is paradoxical to think that we can look forward to an ultimate prize and love someone we have never seen. I can only imagine that as Peter's writing this, he recalls the conversation that he had heard between Thomas and Jesus. Remember what Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20? Thomas was not with them, the disciples, when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I'll not believe. After eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas was with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said... Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. And listen what he said. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, this is what Jesus said to him. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believed. Peter is reiterating this blessing to those who believe, having never seen. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy, unspeakable, and full of glory. This is intended for another paradox. Sight and knowledge are the usual parents of love, but yet we love him, having never seen him. Those of you who have children, do you recall when you saw the ch- your child for the first time? Maybe it was on a screen. As you saw that computer image that they said, there's a baby there. Or maybe you saw them for the first time physically. Or better yet, do you remember when your child looked at you and acknowledged your existence for the first time? There's a deep connection that comes with sight. It is the way we are created, and it's not wrong to be that way. But oh, the blessing that comes to us when we love the one whom we have never seen and hope for his return so that we can see him as he is. I like how Peter contrasts the revelation of our Lord with our current state. Right now, we cannot see him. Still, we have our faith, our hope to cling to because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. My friends, there is an ultimate prize out there. Our king will one day return and we shall behold him. Words fail us for our joy will be unspeakable and we will glorify him fully. Keep your eye on that ultimate prize. In closing, let me go back to the story of Carrie Strug. Did you know that she did not actually need to complete the final vault to win the gold? Ten seconds after Carrie completed her first vault, Russian gymnast Elena Dolgopolova finished her floor routine. But Dogopolova's score had not been posted by the time Carrie was to perform her second vault and the Russians still had two of their best gymnasts needing to complete their strongest event, the floor exercise. The Russians were known for their floor routines, and they still had floor world champion Dina Kachakovova and reigning Russian national floor champion Rosa Galieva to perform their routines. So what was Carrie to do? Had she set out her second vault and the Russians averaged a 9.8 score, the Russians would have taken the gold. And throughout the evening, the judges had been scoring the floor routines very high. So Carrie did her second vault. But just after she completed the second vault, Galeeva, the reigning Russian national floor champion, fell on the floor exercise and scored a devastating 9.5. In the end, Carrie's second vault did not matter. In her 1997 autobiography, Landing on My Feet, Carrie says this about whether she felt she needed to make that second vault. She said, Our USA team had one chance to clinch the gold. I had one vault and one moment to score high enough to win. But there was so much pain in my ankle. When I fell on my first vault, I turned it badly, and I felt a severe pop. I knew something definitely was wrong, but I had only seconds to either try the final vault or walk walk off to the podium and leave the gold medal up for grabs. For me, that decision had been made years before I made that walk to the top of the runway. So she did her vault. Let me conclude with this. C.T. Studd was a British missionary. He was born on December 2nd, 1860 in Spratton, United Kingdom, into a family of wealth and privilege. In 1883, he graduated from Trinity College in Cambridge, and in 1885, he entered the mission field with Hudson Taylor in China. C.T. Studd spent his life in dedicated service to the Lord, serving in China, India, and Africa. In 1913, he formed the World, Evangeliz- World Evangelization Crusade, which operates to this day. And in 1888, married Priscilla Livingston Stewart, they had four daughters and two sons. His wife died in 1929 in C.T. Stud. on July 16, 1931, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But he's probably best known for this poem. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life till soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. My friends, you have but one life. You don't have to do the vault, but you get to. Keep your eye on the prize. The prize is ready for you. And when we behold him, we will see him in his glory, that one we have not seen and yet who we love. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for the attention of these people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eye on the prize. We can rejoice now, even in the midst of sorrow, because we know that one day you will return. Father, we love you even though we've never seen you. And we look forward eagerly to your return. But help us, Lord, to live now in light of that coming. And may we honor and glorify you by telling others about you. I pray you be with these that are here tonight. As they go home, give them safety. Watch over them. I pray that you give them rest throughout the remainder of the week. Lord, we look forward to returning on Sunday where we can worship corporately together and honor your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening.